As you're seated, uh, you can turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. This is uh, my last opportunity to teach out of Colossians as the uh, younger kids uh, head to the back. Uh, Kendrick will be teaching, or a guest speaker will be teaching out of Colossians, the next passage in two weeks. And then uh, Jesse, our official summer intern, will be finishing out Colossians in the middle of August. Uh, in September, when we begin to gather worship, uh, weekly for worship, we will walk through a series called We Are the Crossing that will look at some of our core values. And then we'll come back to a book of the Bible later in the year to finish out the year, the book of Jonah. But this section of Colossians may be the most practical of any uh, part of the book of Colossians. It gets right into the grill of our everyday life. Uh, Colossians paints one of the most beautiful pictures of, of the high view of the gospel, the gospel at 30,000 feet, God, uh, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, this big thing that God's doing. Uh, you see this clearly through Colossians, but the gospel is not just this big view of what God's doing. The gospel is also very individual very much geared to the individual. And I'm not saying individualistic. So the gospel is not just you and God and you don't need anyone else. It's not the Josh Turner song from a few years ago, God and Me. It's a very cool song, but just terrible theology. We were created for community, created for family, saved from death, sin, and Satan to be a part of a family called the church. But the gospel is geared to each and every individual. In other words, every single person has to respond to the gospel. Every single person will be held accountable to the revelation they received from God and how they responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so each one of us have to be, uh, has to respond to the gospel, is held accountable for how to respond to God and his gospel. No one is saved on the coattails of their parents or their grandparents. No one is saved because they're part of a church or denomination. The gospel deals with each and every individual. You can't talk about the gospel only this big view without dealing with the individual. You also can't talk about the gospel only as an individual personal relationship without seeing it as part of this big picture of what God's doing. Community, family. And so see both of those equally, but see particularly this passage, how much it deals and impacts every single individual who hears the gospel, must respond to the gospel, and see how the gospel impacts you in every one of your relationships. Beginning in verse 18 of Colossians 3, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven." And so, Father, we continue to worship you this morning through your word. We thank you. We're filled with gratitude that you have given it to us so we may know you and love you and worship you and walk with you. We thank you for the miracle of preserving it for thousands of years that what we read and hold today is in every way the authoritative word of God. And it's this word, not 
my sermon, not my words. It's your word that gives us life. It's your word that transforms and changes us. And so, Holy Spirit, come and apply the word of God to our lives, to our hearts, our minds. Help us to see who we are. Help us to see who you are. And bring the gospel to bear on us today. For your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. So entire books, websites, ministries, volumes have been written just on these first few verses on marriage and parenting. Not to mention the rest of this section on the workplace relationships between workers and bosses. So I'm going to try to go through all of this in just one 90-minute sermon. So hold on to your seats. Um, before I get into the section on marriage, let me start by giving a couple parenthetical comments that aren't addressed here, but addressed elsewhere in Scripture that I think, think we need to hear. N- number one, it's okay to be single. It's okay to be single. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 and 9, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Before we spend a significant time on marriage, there are those who are single that could be tempted to be disengaged for a while. Let me just check out because he's talking about marriage and parenting, and I don't need to know that for a while because I'm single. Don't, don't do that. The first thing I want you to hear this morning is marriage isn't everything. It's okay to be single. It's not for everybody. It's not even for a majority of us. God's not going to call a majority of people to singleness because he created the family. He created marriage. It's a good thing to bless the earth. But if God calls you to singleness and he gives you the strength to resist temptation, then you need to remain single. Single. And for you who are single, don't, don't look at singleness as, so, as though you are defective in some way, as though you don't measure up as those who are married and can't be used for Christ. And guys, this is unique to Christianity. Christianity was the first thought and belief system to elevate singleness. In ancient cultures, the individual had no value. Your value only came in community, in family. If a woman was widows, widowed in the Roman culture, she was taxed if she wasn't remarried in two years. She could not remain single. Christianity, on the other hand, supported the widows in such a way that they didn't have to get remarried. The church would take care of them if they chose to remain single so they could devote their time, energy, and resources to the the mission and the church and the gospel. God may call some of you to singleness so you can wholly devote your time and energy and resources to staying sexually pure, but also pursue the mission of God in the world. Those who are married, we have the same calling, but we have more responsibilities that divide our time, energy, resource, and focus. Paul says this in, later on in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 32 to 34. I want you to be free from the anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. There is a value in remaining single, and those who are single should not automatically rule out singleness. That should be an option for you just as much as marriage is an option for you. And those who are single into their mid, late 20s, 30s, and 40s, they're not defective because they're single. If God's called them to that, if that's the position of life they find themselves in, Christ can use them just as much as he can use married people. 
The second warning before we look at this passage is uh, our identity is more than your marriage or kids. This passage has a very high view of marriage. The Bible has a very high view of marriage. But also understand your identity is more than who you're married to and your kids. Love, romance, marriage could be overemphasized in our culture. One scholar pointed out that in a culture that is more and more secular, secularism teaches that we came from nothing, that we're simply the product of time, chance, meaninglessness, randomness, randomness. Secularism teaches us that we're headed to just turning back to dirt. There's no, nothing after this life. We're just meaningless, randomness. There's no purpose behind life after death. That's what secularism teaches in a culture that's becoming more and more secular. More and more time and energy and focus is spent to find meaning in life. And a lot of the ways that people do that is to find that certain someone. To find love. To find romance. This is why rom-coms sell out billion dollars a year in the movie theater because everybody's looking for this. Everybody wants this. We need to find meaning and value somewhere because it's not coming in life after death. The Disneyfication of our culture. Everyone has a Prince Charming or a Cinderella out there and your primary goal is to find Mr. Right and Mrs. Right and fall head over heels in love and experience this euphoria, this ecstasy every time you're around this person and people are consumed with finding this person, getting this person, holding on to this person and most of that is an unbiblical perspective on marriage. Guys, you don't need a woman. Girls, you don't need a man. You all need Jesus. We all need Jesus. And only when we get that settled, we find peace, identity, joy, rest, hope in Christ. Christ alone are we freed to be the husbands, wives, spouses that God's created us to be. This is not, and you're saying, well, you just talking to single people. And I'm not just talking to single people. It's not like you get married, all of a sudden you figure all that out. Even to those who are married, even to those who are Christians here, we all struggle with resting and finding our identity and value only in Christ. The whole book of Colossians is about finding our identity in Christ above anything else. So even for us who already have spouses, we need to understand and keep fighting for our value, worth, joy, hope to be found in Christ not our spouse, not our kids. Your identity is more than who you're married to. Your identity is more than who your kids are and what your kids become. Your identity is in Christ. Christ. He is who you really are. He is everything. And unity first in Christ is what helps us become a church that is truly diverse. So we're not just a church for the married and the married with kids. We're also a church for the single, for the divorced, for the barren, for the old, for the young, for everyone in every walk of life. We don't want to make marriages everything. We do want marriages to be healthy and thriving and demonstrate the gospel in our culture, but Christ is everything. And our identity is in Christ is supreme overall. So now that I've pushed back on marriage and parenting a little bit, let's jump into the text the only way to see these short instructions is to see them in the context as always. Paul began Colossians painting this huge, big, amazing picture of identity in Christ, who Christ is, what Christ has done. He talked about his faithful ministry to this church, 
Uh, so that he, he's proclaiming Christ, him we proclaim, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is the goal of the church, Christian maturity, discipleship, disciples who make disciples. Chapter 2, he deals with these false, false teachers to show them how bankrupt these teachers were. And that leads to chapter 3, where we've been for the whole summer, where he's calling these people to live with a heavenly perspective that is so rooted and focused on Christ and in Christ that we are people who are of the greatest earthly good. Everything we see is Christ. Everything is through Christ. We're rooted in Christ. And so we are of the greatest earthly good because we're so focused on Christ. And that leads to a people we talked about who hate sin and we kill sin that's in us. And we see the very presence and power of Christ come through our character, our attitudes, our conduct, so that we become a people of unity, love, consideration for each other that is only explainable by the gospel. It's only possible by the gospel And this new nature and calling goes all the way into our everyday relationships of husbands and wives and kids. So to wives and husbands, verse 18 and 19, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This entire section is a very common formula in the New Testament. You see it in Ephesians 5 and 6, 1 Timothy 5, Titus 2, 1 Peter 2 and 3. It's called the household code. Remember, these letters would be circulated from church to church, and these churches, these people, would not meet in buildings like this, but they would meet in homes. So as the body of Christ was gathered in homes and these letters would be read, they would be read to husbands, wives, children, masters, slaves. That would all be part of the same household, and multiple households joined together. How the gospel made them different. How does the gospel make them different as husbands and wives? How would the gospel transform them as husbands and wives? What's interesting about this call for wives to submit and for husbands to love is that it was culturally revolutionary. Wives had no choice but to submit to their husbands in that culture. They didn't have the same rights as men. They better do what they're told or they could be out on the street. And a a woman on the street with no husband was basically a beggar until she found another husband. There was no government assistance for them, which was, again, radical how the church took care of its widows and its single moms. A woman without a husband had little, little hope in that culture, yet Paul tells them to submit. Not obey. It's not the same word as obey. Obey is in verse 20 when children are to obey parents. But to submit. And husbands are called to love their wives. Why? Why do I have to do that? She's lucky she's married to me. She should be thankful I'm married to her. She should love me because I let her stay. And so when a husband transformed by the gospel of Christ loves his wife, and when a wife transformed by the gospel of Christ willingly, voluntarily yields to the leadership of her husband, submits to her husband, then then their relationship is revolutionary in that culture. But it flows out of our gospel relationship with Jesus. This is easier to see in this this passage in Ephesians, in the marriage section of Ephesians. The instructions in Ephesians on marriage say the exact same thing, but you get more detail in Ephesians 5. But they flow out of Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. So we're not going to look at that section of Ephesians. You can read that on your own. But that whole section on marriage, beginning in verse 22 all the way through verse 33, flow out of what Paul says right here. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Before Paul ever gives instructions to wives and husbands in Ephesus, 
He's first talking about being filled with the Spirit. Okay, being filled with the Spirit is not receiving the Holy Spirit. You already have Him. It's yielding to, submitting to the control of the Holy Spirit in your life. Notice he contrasts it with being drunk with wine. Being drunk with wine is being out of control. Being filled with the Spirit is being in control, in the control of the Holy Spirit. So a person who's filled with the Spirit, this is a command he gives us, is a believer who's submitting to the rule and the the role of the Holy Spirit in their life. And this person will be somebody who has these characteristics. Culminating in someone who submits to one another out of reverence for Christ. The results of a spirit-controlled life ends up in how we treat each other, submitting to each other. Wives to husbands, husbands submitting to their wives by loving them as Christ loved the church. You see a similar context in Colossians where this instruction in verses 18 and 20, uh, 19 flow out of 15 through 17. Notice the similarity of language. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Why? bring all of this up. Look, all marriage is created by God. God is sovereign over all marriages. Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no man separate. He's not talking to only Christian marriages. He's talking to all marriages. God created marriage for all of humanity, for all of humanity to be, to be blessed by marriage. And, and I guess I need to say this from now on. When I say marriage, I'm talking about the historical, orthodox, biblical definition of marriage, not marriage according to the laws of the United States of America. And God created marriage to be a blessing to all cultures and all creation. God is sovereign over all marriages. But these instructions are written to believers and are the result of the Holy Spirit filling these believers, the Word of Christ dwelling in them richly. In other words, these instructions are not to everyone. These instructions are to believers, Christians. Only a Christian, only a follower of Christ has the power and the ability because of Christ in them to obey these commands. This this doesn't make sense for someone who's not a follower of Christ. It's not possible without the Holy Spirit feeling someone and empowering them. This, in fact, is a supernatural marriage. A wife submitting to her husband, a husband loving his wife. So what does that look like? Well, in in our culture, marriage is often, how can I marry this person and use them for my benefit? I want to use them to make me feel fulfilled. I want to use them to make me feel beautiful. I want to use them because I need a man in my life. I need a woman in my life, and they fulfill that role for me. I want to use this person because it makes me look beautiful because they're beautiful. It makes me look successful because they're successful. It makes me look smart because they're smart. I want to use this person for my benefit. Supernatural marriage that flows out of the gospel is not about using that person, but about serving that person. Serving that person. Seeing the person that God is creating them to be and serving them for their good, their benefit. Here's, here's where I see God taking you to make you like Jesus and mature you and grow you. How can I be a part of helping that happen that is for your benefit? Now, will, will, will I benefit from that? Absolutely. 
If I serve my wife and love my wife as Christ served and, and loved the church, I'm definitely going to benefit. She's going to benefit if she's working for my good and serving me for my benefit. But our goal is not to get. Our goal is to give. To give to them the unconditional love of Christ. Notice again, this flows out of what Paul's already said in verses 12 through 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so that you, may, you must also forgive. And above these all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You see the same consideration for each other by serving each other in passages like Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves, that each of you not only look to his own interests, but to the interests of others. By serving your spouse, you are serving and meeting their needs ahead of your own needs. You're always asking, how can I serve them for their good? Well, that just means I'll be a doormat. They'll walk all over me and abuse me. They'll take advantage of me. That's not what this means. Does your spouse need to be able to take advantage of you and walk all over you? abuse you no they don't need that they don't need to be allowed to do that that's not for their good and so this spouse who is serving their spouse for their good will sometimes push back on their spouse and will rub against their spouse in a good way create friction because it needs to be created for their good because they're being a bully they're being selfish So this does not create doormat spouses. If I'm serving you for my good, then sometimes I'm going to push back on you for your good. I'm not just going to sit back and let you become and do whatever you want to do and become, especially if it's sinful and self-destructive. And as I push back on you, I'm not doing it in a mean or violent way, but in a gentle, forbearing way. They, they need you to rub against them to help them grow and mature. Serving one another does not mean you keep your mouth shut and let them do whatever they want. At times you speak up, even if they don't like it. And as husbands and wives, we do that for each other. Now, there are differences in how we relate to each other. Similarities, we always serve each other for each other's benefit. We're not using each other. But differences... Paul says, wives submit, husbands love. Wives respect, husbands give. What what does this mean? Tim Keller does a great job with this. Just as husbands and wives have physical differences in which a man moves toward his wife and a wife receives her husband, so we have the same differences emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. There is a perfect interlocking of physical bodies that God has created and ordained. But there's also a perfect interlocking of non-physical bodies in the emotional, spiritual, psychological realm. C.S. Lewis calls this the dance. If you're dancing side by side with someone, like you're line dancing, you both can make the same moves. In fact, you should make the same moves or you look kind of goofy. But if you're dancing face to face with someone, like in an intimate relationship of marriage... As the husband leads forward with his left foot, the wife has to make a complementary move with her right foot backwards. Not the same exact move, but a different move, one that's complementary, complementary, one that is harmonious with what the husband is doing. And this becomes a dance. The husband leads, the wife follows his leadership. The husband gives, the wife receives. The husband serves, the wife receives and serves back. 
What C.S. Lewis says is that at some deep level, there's a difference between male and female that creates this soul interlocking, just like there's a physical interlocking. This interlocking must be far deeper than anything possible between two people of the same sex and far deeper than two people of opposite sex who are not in a lifelong commitment of both body and soul to each other. Tim Keller says, God created men to lead, and we lead through love, serving and giving of ourselves for the benefit and good of our wives. To submit is to voluntarily, willingly follow that leadership. It's not the same word as obey, like he says to the children. And for wives in that culture who had no choice but to follow their husband, to hear Paul say, choose to do this. You voluntarily, willingly choose to do this because you're serving the Lord was revolutionary. Even more revolutionary was the call for husbands to love their wives. Like, that didn't even register in the Greco-Roman culture. So what does this love and submission dance look like in marriage? Well, the Bible doesn't say. The Bible doesn't spell this out. This is where um, God gives us wisdom. He gives us his spirit. He gives us community so we can figure these things out. So every couple who is following Jesus, loving Jesus, being filled with the spirit, every couple has to figure this out for them. The Bible, in this relationship, it doesn't mean that all wives stay at home and raise the kids. It doesn't mean that she does all the cooking and he does all the earning of money. Every couple has to figure out what works for them. For the husband to initiate and love and serve and give, for the wife to follow that leadership. For for our marriage, me and Jennifer, uh, there's not any decision of any significance that we make without first talking, praying, discussing it together. Like, I'm just not running out doing crazy things without her knowing about it. We're talking, praying, discussing Because I want to know what Jennifer thinks. I value her opinion above anybody else's opinion. I value our relationship above any other relationship. I value our time together above any other person I can spend time with. And so we we talk, we discuss, we pray. There are times where she doesn't want to make a decision, so Jennifer will defer to me and say, look, you make the call. I don't want to make the call on this. There are times where I know we have to go down this path that is difficult, and you're just going to have to trust me because it's going to be hard. And she, and she will. And I always, always, always seek her counsel in all things and value her wisdom and perspective in all things. She, she's my favorite person. All right. I'm getting enough brownie points. Certainly, we sin against each other. There's a constant need of forgiveness. It's a constant need of, of grace that we need to show each other. We're continually amazed at how much we get wrong and how many times we have the same stupid fights and arguments that we've always had. It's like 16 years. We should have some of this figured out by now. Why are we having these same discussions? So there's lots of sin in there. Don't, don't hear me wrong. But when God, by God's grace, we get it right, we thrive. We thrive. But won't wives be abused if they just submit and follow the leadership of their husbands? Guys, that can happen in any marriage relationship. But remember, the context of this is spirit-filled, gospel-driven people. And as they let the life of Jesus flow through them, husbands will lead like Jesus, loving, serving, and giving, and wives will flourish. In fact, this is so much how God has designed and created us. When a husband, by God's grace, because of Jesus inside of him, loves and serves and gives to his wife, a wife wants to follow that leadership. She's created to follow that leadership. She loves to follow that leadership. And she will flourish like no other. And then that relationship becomes this beautiful dance that demonstrates the gospel. All right, to children and parents, verse 20. 
Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. First question out of the gate, what does he mean by children? Well, the word translated for children can refer to children of any age. So this could be young children, teenagers, adult children. But the context, in fact, Paul is writing to uh, these churches where often in these households there would be adult children still living with mom and dad. Now, this is not adult children in the sense that they're waking up at 10 o'clock, they're wearing their pajamas all day, they're not getting a job, they're mooching off of mom. That's not adult children he's talking about. These are adult children who have stayed to work the family business, farming, whatever craft or trade they happen to have. And so he would be writing a letter, reading in this context where there would be adult children present. Uh, Paul could be talking to children of any age, but the fact this parallel passage in Ephesians 6 says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So in this parallel passage, Paul is telling fathers to bring these children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's a command you would give to a father of younger children, not a father of adult children. Also, the fact that Paul would tell these children in Colossians to obey their parents in everything, again, that's something you would tell a parent of a younger child, a child who's still dependent on their parents, living at home, not old enough or responsible enough to be independent yet, And that seems to be who this is addressed to. Obviously, if you're an adult, you still live at home, your call to obey your parents would flow out of your relationship with them. It would look different than a younger child. You still have to honor them at any age. We're all called to honor our parents no matter how old they are or how old we are. But to obey looks different as we get older and our our level of responsibility changes. Um, For any age child, if a mom or dad calls you to do something that would make you disobey God then this, this is off. You're out. Like you don't have to sin because mom and dad have told you to sin. Nope, no mom, that, that, dad, that clearly would cause me to sin against God, so I can't do that. Or if this causes, calls a child to submit to abuse, then this command is you're, all, you're out of it. You don't have to willingly give in to abuse from a parent. But for a child still dependent on parents, parents who are loving them, giving them instruction for their good, your call is to obey. Your call is to obey. Understanding obedience is doing what you're told, doing it when you're told, doing it with a respectful attitude. It's not obedience if you procrastinate, you put it off, you delay it, or if mom and dad tell you what to do and you snort, stomp, slam doors as you go down the hall and eventually do it. That's not obedience. Obedience to mom and dad is not just obedience to them, Paul says, it's obedience to the Lord. And parents, especially of younger kids, this is why we work so hard to teach our kids to obey with respectful attitude. Because you're pointing them to that greater obedience, obedience of the Lord. It's not just about them following rules because you have rules in your household. You're establishing those for their good, for their safety, for their health. Then you teach them that by obeying these rules, it goes well for you in this house. Just like it does with God. God has created his laws, his commands for our good God's not just arbitrarily throwing stuff out, seeing what sticks against the wall and making us obey it and holding us accountable if we don't. He has created commands for our good. And the Bible clearly paints a picture of a people who when they obey the commands of God, life goes well for them. doesn't mean everything works out in their favor. It doesn't mean they get everything they want. This is not health, wealth, and prosperity theology. 
But as far as their soul, their health, their joy, their goodness that they experience, the shalom that God has created us for, you experience that when you do things God's way. And parents, when we teach our kids to obey our commands, we're teaching them how to experience that within the economy of God. It's the same. You're pointing them beyond your rules to the the God who created them. I've been saying moms and dads or parents. Well, Paul says fathers in verse 21. Is it okay to include moms? Well, fathers are the head of the household and the marriage. Fathers are the ultimate responsibility for the well-being of the house. If something is wrong in the house, God's first coming to the dad to hold them accountable. Hold him accountable for what's wrong in the house. And remember that this idea of dad going off to work and leaving mom at home with the kids is a rather recent experience in our culture. Only came about with the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s. Before then, most fathers worked around or out of the house. The entire family would be involved in a particular craft or job. Industrial Revolution comes along. Dad leaves for 12 to 16, 18 hours a day. The kids never seen. And so in, in this culture, in the first century, fathers were much more involved in raising the children. But moms are a part of that. At least that's implied. And moms certainly have to be a part of that today where so many dads are deferring all this instruction to mom, teachers at school, or people at church. That's not biblical parenting either. So it definitely includes the fathers. It also includes the moms. Moms are part of that also under his leadership or maybe to make up for the lack of his leadership. And the call for fathers and moms and parents is not to provoke them. Our Ephesians 6 says, exasperate your children. Here he says, lest they become discouraged. You can ride a kid so hard they quit trying. They're just done. I can't ever get it right. You've not only broken their will, but you've broken their spirit. Kids need to be shown their sinfulness. They need to be shown their need of a Savior. They need to be taught at a young age to turn from sin and turn to Jesus constantly. But kids don't have to be crushed into submission. Kids don't have to be broken so hard they don't know your love and grace. Guys, you can definitely over-discipline a child where all they know is control. The problem is is you're creating a dependent child. They don't know how to do anything without you. They can't make their own decisions. They're always afraid to make a mistake. You can also under-discipline a child where you want them to be independent, but you never give them correction or instruction, so they have no boundaries, and they don't know boundaries because you're letting them make all the decisions. You're letting them reason everything out when physiologically, spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, they're not ready for that. They're kids. So there is a balance of instruction and training, but it always flows out of love, grace, and mercy. You have to be able to instruct them and know they respect your leadership, and they will follow you. But you also have to show your unconditional love for them so that when they blow it, when they blow it, they can come to you always and they always know you will come after them. You will pursue them. Thirdly, bondservants and masters. Verse 22. Slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Any slaves or bondservants in here? This word could be accurately translated as slaves, and that's what the ESV does. Most Bibles translate it as bondservants because of the negative connotations that come from the word slaves and our experience with the African slave trade. 
which brings up a very common objection to the New Testament, to the Bible. Why is there so much talk of slavery and no one's pushing back against slavery? If the gospel is so culturally transforming, then why didn't they get rid of slavery in the first century? And we wouldn't have had to have dealt with it later on in American history. In fact, an entire book of the Bible is written to convince a slave owner, Philemon, to receive back his slave, Onesimus, who, by the way, is carrying, part of the group, carrying this letter to the church of Colossae. So Onesimus is hearing this along with the book of Philemon. Let me, let me give you a quick overview of why slavery in the New Testament is not the same as the African slave trade that we hate so much, and why the New Testament did not explicitly denounce slavery. First, why slavery in the Bible is different than slavery uh, that, we, that we think of in America. Uh, slavery in the Bible was not based on race or ethnicity, where you had one particular race or ethnicity serving another particular race or ethnicity. Secondly, slavery in the Bible was not permanent. You would not be a slave for your entire life. Typically, you would be released after 10 or 15 years. Thirdly, it wasn't based on kidnapping. Usually, your country would lose at war to another country, and soldiers would serve for a period of time as servants or slaves in the, in the country that defeated them, kind of like an indentured servant. Fourthly, lastly, slaves had rights. Slaves could sue their masters. They could bring a complaint against their masters in court. Um, in fact, they could own property and slaves could actually own other slaves. And so when you, when you read slaves or servants in Scripture, know it's not the same thing that we think of in America as slavery. Therefore, Paul and the other New Testament writers and Jesus aren't trying to figure out how to end this evil atrocity right now. They're trying to help people who come alive in Christ know how to live in their current state right then. And what ends up happening through the gospel and other writings like this and letters like Philemon is the gospel created the atmosphere in which slavery would eventually die. In fact, F.F. F. Bruce said, a great 19th century scholar, what Paul writes to masters and slaves in the New Testament creates the atmosphere in which institutionalized slavery would eventually wilt and die. And we know that it did. Led by evangelical Christians and Quakers, we had the abolition of slavery. Just the fact that Paul spends so much time addressing the slaves first, giving them so much more instruction, treating them with respect and dignity. As they're gathered in these households, they're hearing all of this red slaves sitting next to their masters. The slaves are like, wow, I, am, I have value. I have worth. I, I have a place in the body of Christ. I have things that I can do to serve Christ and grow his kingdom. And for Paul to give instructions to the masters on how to treat their servants right in front of them. In the Greco-Roman culture, they were taught to treat their slaves like enemies. You rule them with power and fear. The Bible says, no, respect and treat them well. They're people. But still, you may be thinking, we're not masters, and we don't have bondservants, and no one owns us, so how does this make any application to our life? Can't we just skip these sections or cut them out? Well, it applies to our life because of one word, work. We have to work. Just as slaves and masters had jobs to do to run the household, so we have to work as well. And work is hard, and work is drudgery, and work can wear you down. Work-related stress, anxiety, misery causes how many physical problems in our culture? Emotional issues. I mean, all you have to do is say Monday, and there's like a groan. You're right, that's tomorrow. And we're working more and more in our culture with our little wonderful smartphones and tablets like we can never turn them off and stop working. It never ends. 
I'd love to do an entire teaching on work and rest because it's, it's huge. It's an area God has dealt with me a lot on and is dealing with me a lot on. But, but quickly, God built us to work. Work predates the fall. Work is not sin. But work is cursed by sin, as everyone in this room knows. Because most of the time you try to do work, how often does it go perfectly right? Never. Just ask Kendrick in this building. Probably lots of temptations to say things in frustration and aggravation, right? One day we will work without sin, being a part of it. Work will always be a joy and always be worship. But now work is hard. It's filled with things that don't work, things that break, difficulty, stress. But God made us to work. God also made us to rest. He revealed this pattern in in creation by working six days and resting one day. While we don't believe the Sabbath needs to be kept in the same way it was kept by the Jews before Christ, we do believe there needs to be a rhythm of work and rest in your life. There needs to be a time where you shut it down. Not just because of the physical benefits that we receive because of rest to our physical bodies, but primarily because of the benefits of rest to our souls. We shut it down weekly with Sabbath time because we need to be reminded that Jesus did all the work. Jesus accomplished everything necessary for our salvation, and we rest in that constantly. And what you find is that those who are resting well spiritually in Jesus and trusting him for all things will also be those who rest well physically. Rest is a spiritual experience of walking in peace and trusting your Father for all things and not giving in to the anxiety and worry that fills the hearts and lives of so many in our culture. We work hard, but we don't work anxiously because we're always at rest in Jesus. Work is also elevated because of the gospel. In other words, all jobs are valued. As you see in this text, whatever you do, you do for the Lord, no matter how small or how menial. When you're serving your master in the most mundane task, you realize you're not serving him, but you're serving the Lord, so do it well. Not just to be applauded by people, but when no one is looking or noticing and seeing your efforts. It's hard in our human nature to do this. We want to be noticed, especially if we're doing the small menial jobs. Look how humble I am that I'm cleaning this toilet or sweeping this floor or doing this menial task. Praise me for my humility. That's our flesh cries out for that. And you may get that in this life. In fact, if that's all you're ever after, that's all you'll ever get. But that's never your motivation. Your heart is not set on earthly reward, but heavenly reward, because your heart isn't set on your earthly master, but your heavenly master. Look, some of us have jobs that we love. Maybe like three of us, I don't know. It's not a drudgery to get up. You're excited about getting after what you have to do and head to work. Most of us and most people in our culture, that's not the case. Most people are punching a clock, they're counting the hours until the weekend, until the next holiday, until vacation, until retirement. Which, by the way, retirement isn't a biblical concept either. The idea that you ever quit working. You know, you might quit a career when you're older, draw retirement income, but now you're more available than ever to work for the Lord and to serve Him without the restrictions of a -a 40-hour-a-week job. But don't put your hope and joy in retirement or the weekend or vacation. I remember my first year teaching school. Uh, the first year of teaching school, nothing can prepare you for this. I mean, nothing can prepare you. St- student teaching doesn't come close. They just kind of throw you into the sharks, and you either swim or you get eaten. And very quickly, I began to live for the weekends. Like Friday afternoon, man, I was getting excited. Jennifer and I were married. We had no kids. Total freedom. 
and we'd eat good food and, and watch a movie and go do things that were fun, just crazy party animals, fall asleep on the couch like 2 o'clock in the morning. Saturday was a good day, but by Sunday afternoon, this angst started growing. Like, ah, oh, man, i got to go back tomorrow. And I began to quickly realize that's, I was living for this joy of the weekend, so the joy of Thanksgiving break. Are you kidding me? I get a whole week away from that place? And what I was doing as I was failing to realize that all work has value because all of our work is ultimately for our true master. This crushes the sacred, secular divide that was created in churches years ago. This is actually a huge part of the Reformation led by Martin Luther in the 1500s, the priesthood of all believers. Luther saw a system where priests, monks, and nuns were considered by, that they were doing the Lord's work and everyone else just had a job. Luther came across passages like this and he said, hold on, we're all doing the Lord's work. The calling to be a milkmaid is no less honorable than the calling to be a gospel preacher, our monk, our nun. We're all gospel ministers. We all work for the Lord. It's not the clergy alone who are doing the Lord's work. We all do the Lord's work. You don't have to be in full-time vocational ministry to do the Lord's work. God will call some of you to that. And it's okay to earn a living from preaching the gospel. The New Testament says this clearly. But most of us will do the Lord's work by working jobs and being bankers and teachers and nurses and skilled laborers and stay-at-home moms and engineers and salesmen and business owners or whatever career God puts you in. We need more believers, in fact, pursuing the mission of God in those places. Then we need people leaving the workplace to isolate themselves in full-time church ministry. This is part of the reason that we as elders have no plans in the foreseeable future to be supported full-time by the Crossing Church. Not just because we don't want to put the weight of supporting us financially uh, on the church, on a young church, but we also see value in having a foot in the world. That it's good to have co-workers who don't know Jesus and you have to see them every single week. Every week, my hospice job is one of my primary mission fields. And you have yours. Might be your job, might be school, but you're exactly where your father wants you right now so that he can use your job to meet your needs, to give you the opportunity for mission and to allow you to worship him through your work. And so see your work as the Lord's work. See your performance as worship to him and above any other performance review or assessment you get from your bosses. You only have one boss who will be around in five million years. What does he say about the job you're doing? This doesn't give us an excuse to be terrible employees. You know, you go in for performance review and you've done horrible. Well, Jesus thinks I did pretty good. That's not what this is a call to do. Like we should be the best employees, not because of the paycheck or the reward or the praise, but because of honoring and worshiping our king. He will give us the ultimate evaluation on our job, good or bad, as Paul says in this text. So we work for him. So how would your job look differently if you didn't do it for the grade or you didn't do it for the paycheck, you didn't do it for the performance and the praise of people, but you did it for the Lord? And masters, bosses, or those who have any position over someone else, treat those under you well because you have a master in heaven. This is a deliberate play on words that the translators bring out, thankfully. Masters, you have a master, and he's in heaven. We create these incredible caste systems in our workplaces, all based on merit, seniority, experience, education, success. Whatever the criteria is, there's a definite caste system in our workplace, and it's not going away. In fact, it's necessary to some degree. Like, you don't want to be in a surgical center where they've turned surgery over to the janitorial staff. 
Like you want the people with the knowledge, the schooling, the experience doing surgery on you. That's, it's necessary for things to work right, but there should be no caste system in how you treat people with dignity, respect, justice, and fairness. We don't look down on others. We don't devalue them. We don't snub them. We treat them with the same grace in which we've received from our Heavenly Master. Sure, we hold people accountable. We ask them to do a good job. But it's not because they are our subordinate and we get to boss them around. It's because they are our brother or sister in Christ. Or they are our potential brother or sister in Christ. And we're working for their good, the good of what God's created and called them to. So in in closing, I know it's hot. You've been incredibly patient. See Jesus throughout this passage. See Jesus throughout this passage. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. And we know from Ephesians, that's as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents. For this pleases the Lord. Bond servants, we serve our masters. Obey them in everything, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you get an inheritance. You are serving the Lord Christ. Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing you have a master in heaven. Wives. You have a submission to your husband that is beyond your husband, but to Jesus. Husbands, you have a love for your wife that is beyond your wife, but is a love for Jesus. Children, you have an obedience that is beyond your obedience to your parents. It is an obedience to Jesus. Parents, you have a way of parenting your kids that is beyond their good, but it is for Jesus. Workers, you have a boss who is beyond your boss, your true boss, Jesus. Bosses, you have a boss too. It is Jesus, the ultimate boss. How is all of this possible? Because Jesus came from the Father, sent by love, to willingly, voluntarily submit to the will of the Father in all things, to serve us and give his life as a ransom for our sins. Because Jesus is the perfect Son who perfectly obeyed the Father at all times, unlike us. Because Jesus and the Father never give us commands that are burdensome, And never work in our lives to discourage us or condemn us. Because Jesus is the perfect servant. And through Jesus, we can also serve our master well. Because Jesus is also our master who is the perfect boss. And not only gives the orders, but he gives us everything we need to do our jobs. Jesus has done everything necessary to make us this kind of people. And his spirit lives in us, giving us all we need to fulfill this in our lives. We're going to have a time of response through song, response through communion, and response of you allowing the Spirit to see where this settled on your heart. Where do you need to repent? Where do we need to repent and trust in Jesus? It may be for some who are non-believers. This is the, the first time you truly trusted and believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, repented of your sins. Please let me know, let Kendrick know, let Scott know before you leave. Let somebody here know before you leave. So we can celebrate with you. Let me pray for you. Father, we are so thankful for who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He came and accomplished all things necessary for us to be your children, for us to be family, for us to live this gospel transformation out in everyday life as wives, as husbands, as children, as parents, as workers, as bosses. And so help us to see that, help us to believe that, and repent of where we don't. Help us to respond this morning in worship and belief and trust and faith.
We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.